This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, Ben Mathis here with just a quick announcement. If you enjoy this episode, I hope you'll subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and support the podcast by donating to our annual fundraising drive at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. In case you missed it earlier this week, I got a little bit of attention for my interview with former Mexican President Vicente Fox, and a photo of the two of us making a not-so-nice hand gesture intended for our favorite guy, Donald Trump. Got quite a few emails over that one. Trump supporters seem to be oddly obsessed with shoving things up my backside, and one white supremacist group that's backing Donald Trump tried to insult me using an anti-Semitic epithet. Not sure how relevant it was, because I'm actually not Jewish. No idea where they got that impression from. Must be the beard. Got a lot of Spanish tweets, still no idea what those say, and I got an awful lot of love from the Trump Tiny Hands Pack, as well as many listeners and folks in the Never Trump movement. Considering that Donald Trump continues to raise the vulgarity bar on a near-daily basis, I'd be amazed if anyone even winced at that photograph. But if any of you, the listeners, were offended, then I apologize. To you but I do not apologize to Donald Trump. You see, I am notoriously verbose. I prattle on forever. Brevity is not my strong suit. And anyone who hangs out with me is probably already sick of hearing my diatribes against Donald Trump, his crazy movement, and the danger he poses to the GOP and to this country. I can literally go on for hours. So when I find a simple hand gesture that can so perfectly sum up my feelings about Donald Trump, I go with it. Sorry, not sorry. But admittedly, especially for a former head of state like Vicente Fox, the image probably didn't make for the best political optics. So today, I'm consulting the optics expert, Josh King. He's the former advance man for the Clinton-Gore campaign, and former White House Director of Production for Presidential Events during the Bill Clinton administration. He's the co-creator and former co-host of Polyoptics, a weekly Sirius XM satellite radio show dedicated to the optics of modern politics. He's appeared on the BBC, CNN, Fox News, Bloomberg TV, MSNBC, and NPR. But he got his start in politics as the advance man for the presidential campaign of Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. You remember him, that sort of goofy-looking guy driving around in a tank, now infamous as the worst example of a campaign photo op gone wrong. Well, luckily, Josh can't claim credit for that one, but he has the inside scoop on that famously bad political image, and he writes about it and other tales of campaign optics gone awry in his new book, off Script, An Advance Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide. Today he'll talk about how a political advance man stages a memorable campaign event, memorable in the good way, how to minimize screw-ups, missteps, and flubs, 
and choreograph the image reporters splash on the front page, all while making it look totally organic and unrehearsed. He'll talk about some of the most memorable presidential campaign events that backfired. He'll discuss why no president ever wears a hat and how Donald Trump just threw most of those rules out the window. Plus, Josh will talk optics in the age of social media and how to keep a candidate's picture from getting memed. Coming up with Josh King in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Today I'm joined by Josh King. He's a public relations expert. He's a former campaign advance man and former White House director of production for presidential events. He has a new book called Off Script, an advance man's guide to White House stagecraft, campaign spectacle, and political suicide. Well, Josh, I appreciate your coming on the podcast, and I'll tell you, as I started the book, it kind of took me back to my days in film school, because as an advance man, you weren't just there to wrangle supporters and set up the podium. You were basically producing the images that the campaign wanted to portray on the news each night. And you talk about actually bringing a scope to visualize how a shot would look from the press risers, and you talk about storyboarding everything out. It's a lot like being a movie director. Standing at a distance of, let's say, 60 to 75 feet away, which is your typical throw from where the press sets up for a rally to where the candidate stands at the podium, if you take that rifle scope and look straight through where you expect the candidate's head to be and look at what is the candidate, that will frame what we call in the TV business the tight shot, that rectangular space right. around which the, the candidate is speaking. Now, when you pull back, you, when you uh, zoom out from that, you get a medium shot, which tends to show uh, the interaction of the candidate with the people that are on stage with them. And when you do the wide shot, you see the whole expanse of the moment. A, a candidate in Seattle, a candidate in Omaha, a candidate in Atlanta, anywhere that they are, you try and this wide shot gives you the geographic sense and also the sense of excitement and momentum around your candidate. The one other shot there is, Ben, is what we call the cutaway shot, where reporters, videographers are standing somewhere behind the candidate at about a 45-degree angle, shooting a reverse shot over the candidate's shoulder as he or she speaks to a crowd and hopefully in that expanse beyond, there are large, enthusiastic crowds of people to validate the candidate's sense of momentum. Well, talk about what you carried with you in your tool bag that you brought along to events. When I was uh, in my prime as an advanced person, I carried a large duffel bag full of tools. And whether that was a distance wheel that you used to measure off exactly how far your camera throws were, how large your uh, crowd area was going to be, how large your press area was going to be, the different chutes through which you would send the candidate uh, uh, with bicycle rack barricades on either side, whether you would elevate that chute so that the candidate was walking atop a 12-inch or 18-inch riser 
making them seem to be floating above the crowd. That was another tool that we had. Uh, I, just in case, I would carry probably two gross worth of uh, small miniature United States flags, just in case we had an impromptu <laughs> rally in some place and I had to break out the flag supply. I also, uh, metallic mylar streamers would makes for a lot of uh, reflective light if you give a couple hundred people about a three inch, yeah. a three foot length of that. So, at at the top of the game, I I had a, a, a duffel bag full of these tricks that could make a spontaneous moment seem long planned. Yeah, and I think I read there that you used to bring your own answering machine with you too. You know, in the days before cell phones, back, back during the, the Clinton day, campaign ben, and the D Dukakis days. <laughs> back in the day, Ben, when we would check into a Holiday Inn uh, in Kentucky or South Dakota, you know, you'd get those rotary dial phones or push-button phones. And at some point, they had the standard RJ-11 phone jack. And if you carried a Radio Shack answering machine with you and quickly adapted your hotel room phone to your home phone answering machine... You could be much more productive and efficient uh, working on a site <laughs> in a town because you could come back to your hotel room and you wouldn't rely on those little yellow notes maybe left at the front desk. But long before there was a voicemail in hotel rooms, I was basically setting up my own field office using this phone machine that I would carry around. And probably all the equipment that I schlepped helped me eventually get my White House job. Well, yeah, and you probably got a bad back from having to carry all that junk around everywhere <laughs> for, to every campaign stop, I would imagine. It kept me in shape over time, I think. <laughs> well, you talk about your crash course in optics when you went to campaign advance man school on the Dukakis campaign, which was your first big general election campaign. And apparently there are four big rules to being a political advance man. What are those? Well... When you get invited to advanced school, it's, it's basically like being invited to the Hogwarts of politics, where they teach <laughs> you how to be wizards uh, in, a, in, a, in any kind of political uh, uh, location, whether you're at an airport tarmac or in a hotel ballroom or at the foot of Mount Rushmore or at the base of the Alamo in San Antonio. And you're learning about uh, the location of the available light, uh, where is the sun going to be in the sky, how much do you need to augment it. You're learning about sound and how much it's important to basically uh, give the candidate a good, clean feed back to the press and have that well distributed to every camera that's there. You also need to know how to balance that sound with the rest of the crowd, and that was the big problem that Howard Dean faced in early 2004 yeah. with the Dean scream. He was trying to project <laughs> to 3,500 people at the Valair Ballroom in West Des Moines. And while he was basically yelling out to these 3,500 people, the only voice, the only sound that the national media heard was this man's voice screaming through his microphone. You couldn't tell that <laughs> he was basically like John Bon Jovi trying to sing to these people, and they were screaming right back at an even more elevated tone. But to the people in the control room back east, the producers watching, it was like Governor Dean was deranged. And that, that unfortunately created the Dean scream. Yeah, the yeehaw moment. Yeah. When they're on the stump, they're playing to the crowd. They're not necessarily thinking about playing to the media you know, and thinking about that night's news when they're out there in front of a crowd. They're living in the moment. 
is it hard to get a candidate to think that way? You've got to take care of that for them, Ben. You know, a candidate does this three, four, maybe five times a day, different locations, different sound vendors, different lighting vendors. And it's up to the advanced team to create a consistent set and consistent uh, engineering for each of these. And the worst thing that can happen is that whether it's Howard Dean or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, that they get up and they can't even hear themselves speak over the crowd. So you do have to figure out exactly how many people are going to be there, how much noise they're going to make, and balance that out for them with monitor reverse speakers on stage so that they can uh, they can hear themselves project yeah. to whatever level of sound is in that room they're not they're not screeching yeah yeah i imagine that it's very hard for an advanced man to predict what the candidate's going to do or how they're going to perceive a certain situation um you spend about a third of the book talking about the most infamous miscalculation in modern presidential optics the famous dukakis tank image uh, 20 years later, there have been a lot of different versions of how that came to be, and various people have claimed that they were the ones who tried to warn the campaign. You were an advance man for the Dukakis campaign. What went wrong there? What Governor Dukakis was facing was a real deficit in his polling on a key measure of would be a credible commander-in-chief, especially when compared to his likely opponent, Vice President George H.W. Bush. Bush, remember, was one of the youngest fighter pilots or bombing, bomber pilots in World War II, shot right. down over the Pacific, plucked out of the water by the USS Finback, went on to represent Texas in Congress, become Republican Party chair, envoy to China under President Ford, and also director of the CIA. So that by any measure, uh, George H.W. Bush was qualified and prepared to be commander-in-chief. Governor Mike Dukakis, on the other hand, was drafted into the Army, spent two years in Korea as a teletype operator during the armistice, uh, served his time honorably, of course, but left uh, military service behind when he began his career moving up through the ranks of, of Massachusetts politics. Had a great record as governor, scored well in these polls uh, on the measure of cares about people like me. But in that summer, it was a real debate in Dukakis headquarters about whether he should play to his strengths or try and shore up his weakness, which is uh, that we might entrust him to the keys of the U.S. arsenal. So to try and get a twofer, bring him to a state rich in electoral votes like Michigan, and there were 20 at stake, and he needed to win that state, and also do an event that would shore up his credentials as the commander-in-chief of the United States, right. they went to General Dynamics and decided to give him a ride in an M1A1 Abrams main battle tank. And my friend Matt Bennett was the advance man. Matt tried to warn headquarters. Photographers tried to warn headquarters. The campaign manager, Susan Estrich, thought it wasn't a good idea. Bill, Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas seemed to weigh in with Estrich. <laughs> But on the other hand, there were the Hawks in the Senate, like Sam Nunn of Georgia, uh, like uh, Carl Levin of Michigan, where General Dynamics had its home. And the people were seemed to be more focused on the speeches and the words than the photo op. And he gets into this tank, which Matt had done a dress rehearsal in and warned the campaign about that 
Governor Dukakis would have to wear a gray jumpsuit and a helmet if he was going to have his torso protruding at a 45-mile-an-hour drive. And uh, network news crews following this said, you know, this, this is almost Reagan-esque imagery. And they all created <laughs> two-minute packages for the evening news. And some people would remember that it wasn't that bad for Dukakis at that very moment, that indeed right. he did have a pretty good day in the news that night. But in Washington, D.C., at that very moment, a guy named Sig Rogish, who was then the advertising director for Bush Quail, gets an idea, and he starts writing on a yellow legal pad all the things that Dukakis has opposed uh, for Pentagon spending and other matters, and works on a script with a guy named Jim Weller. They present it to Roger Ailes. Then they acquire an independent cut of this footage from Sterling Heights. And five weeks later, during the third game of the World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Oakland A's, the tank ad appears. That's October 18th, right. 1988. Dukakis is trying to mount a surge and a comeback, but this really puts the nail in the coffin. So the image didn't really live on beyond the initial, you know, say one or two news cycles. It really wasn't that damaging until they ran with it in paid media. Well, certainly the Republican, the Bush quail campaign thought, thought they had an opportunity in the immediate day that followed and started to take advantage of it. They put out talking points uh, that day and for the three days that followed, faxed them around the country. Uh, and even Vice President Bush, at the end, by the end of the week, was mocking Dukakis on the stump. And by the Tuesday that followed, polling had showed that people who knew about the tank ride were less inclined to vote for Dukakis than they had before. But it, re it, but it really would have died there, Ben, had not the tank ad debuted <laughs> five weeks later. Yeah, and, and the optics problem there was that it was a huge tank. He was a little guy. And when he puts on the helmet, he has, you know, exaggerated features with the bushy eyebrows and the nose. And some people compared him to Snoopy. Yeah, the, the image that operatives had probably in headquarters was the 1971 film Patton with George right. C. Scott playing the iconic <laughs> general atop an M60 Sherman tank. And... Pat, and George C. Scott was a much bigger figure, cut a much larger silhouette, and the M60 tank was a much smaller tank than the M1A1. Yeah. And when Dukakis gets in his M1A1, he's five foot eight inches. The tank is uh, is seventy thousand pounds, and um, and he does look like a peanut uh, atop <laughs> that turret. And yeah. there was a huge debate then about whether Dukakis should wear the helmet or not. Well, yeah, uh, they, the hat rule. They, they, the, the hat rule from, for Dukakis' campaign dictated that, the, and this was written into their advance manual, that the candidate would, all, would often be presented with sombreros, hats, coal miners' helmets, and he could graciously receive them and, and display them, but should not in any circumstances put them on right. his head. And that goes way didn't, back. It, didn't, it, it went back to the beginning of their campaign. And, well, well, it goes back to Calvin Coolidge, you said. It goes back to Coolidge and wearing the Indian headdress. Uh, <laughs> uh, that photo is, is uh, well available on the Internet. Kennedy, yeah. John F. Kennedy uh, famously swore off a, a, a top hat at his inauguration day because you know, he wanted to strike a new look for a new generation. So this was the unwritten rule of campaign stagecraft that, that politicians should not wear hats. And uh, they tried to strike a compromise in Sterling Heights 
bring the tank and Dukakis for a very slow roll in front of the press riser, uh, let the photographers get their shots. Hopefully they would say, okay, we've got what we need. Let's take this roll of film out of the camera, give it to the courier, send it to the bureau for processing, and then get on with our day. Yeah. And what happens instead is the tank then uh, steers away to a farther part of the proving ground, well out of eye, largely out of eyesight, and turns around and stops. And the trip director of Dukakis, uh, of the Dukakis campaign at that point, Jack Weeks, said, you know, holy F, uh, <laughs> looks like the tank has run out of gas. This will be a terrible headline. But no, it's just pausing to allow the people atop the tank to put on their helmets so the tank can then go on its high-speed roll. And it does these maneuvers, but it comes way too close to the press riser, almost coming right at it at 45 miles an hour until it makes a sharp left turn. It's 105-millimeter howitzer almost decapitating the reporters that were on the press riser, but getting close enough for them to get this grinning, smiling shot of Governor Dukakis, his helmet with a large white stenciled label on it that says Mike Dukakis that looks like a guy, frankly, trying to look more like Pete Maverick Mitchell of Top Gun than, uh, <laughs> than a credible commander-in-chief. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back for more with Josh King. Back in just a moment. If you're interested in my conversation with Josh King, then you'll enjoy his new book, Off Script, An Advance Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be off script by my guest today, Josh King, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And if you like Kick-Ass Politics, then support the show by donating to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Your support is always appreciated. And now, back to the show. We're back, and today I'm talking to campaign advance man and former White House Director of Production, Josh King. Well, Josh, you took a break from politics after the Dukakis defeat, and then you came back four years later to help out Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, and he was helped in no small part by some unfortunate optics on the part of George H.W. Bush, the famous debacle around the grocery store scanner. Uh, you talk about that as a case where the truth of the image never really caught up with the lie, which certainly speaks to the power of imagery. Uh, it wasn't as simple as the popular version of events that Bush just hadn't been in a grocery store in ages and was completely befuddled by an ordinary checkout scanner, was it? It's the biggest misconception in political stagecraft, Ben. And, you know, but for uh, the life that he had lived and the opportunities that he had, he's just like us. So when Bush uh, is in a tough spot early January 1992, the Gulf War is history, the economy is headed for a tailspin, his polls are in the decline, he goes to Japan, 
He vomits in the lap of Kichi Miyazawa, the prime minister, <laughs> comes back to Washington, gives his State of the Union address, complete with an economic recovery plan, then goes out into America to try and sell it. His stop takes him to Orlando, Florida, and the National Grocers Association Convention. And you know what these are like, Ben. You're about to speak to several thousand delegates in, the, in a convention hall, but you want to be a courteous guest and walk through their exhibit tour and right. show that you're interested right. in what they're doing. And the tour brings them to a NCR scanner exhibit, and there's only one print reporter accompanying President Bush on this tour, and he's responsible for writing a pool report. Uh, basically a, a few sentences or a couple paragraphs of what he saw so that it can be dis- mimeographed and distributed to the other reporters back in the filing center who don't witness this moment at all. So through the eyes of one reporter, Greg McDonald of the Houston Chronicle, who scribbles out, among other things, that when Bush watched a obviously advanced supermarket scanner go through its paces, the president had, quote, a look of wonder on his face. <laughs> and whether Greg was just trying to write funny or Bush was just trying to be polite, this was by no means he doesn't know what a supermarket scanner is. He's being any kind of a dutiful visitor to someone right. else's Asking home questions. or exhibit. Yeah. And then back in the filing center where all of the major newspaper reporters are trying to file their stories, Andrew Rosenthal of the New York Times picks up this pool report, watches the video, and makes comes to his own conclusions, having not witnessed it in person, that then turns into a front-page New York Times headline the next day. The banner says, Bush confronts supermarket, comma, amazed. And the story accentuated and brought to a new level this idea that President Bush was out of touch. President Bush may have you know, lived a very different life than uh, all of us, but certainly not because Right. He was a courteous visitor to a supermarket right. scanner exhibit at a, at a trade show. <laughs> yeah, and that was one of the things that got your boss at the time, Bill Clinton, elected, and you were his advance man. When you were an advance man for Clinton, were there any specific things that you were told to avoid, such as, say, pretty young girls in a crowd, <laughs> any particular interactions or uh, images that, that you wanted to avoid that were somewhat specific to Bill Clinton? I mean, not really. Uh, Clinton, Clinton loved to dive into what we call the rope line, that uh, expanse of people that are right behind a, a barricade in front of his stage. And because he knew, frankly, that the more people whose hands he shook or hugs he gave or babies he kissed, that these people would have memories that last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you have the luck of a draw that when he starts to work a rope line, and you have the traveling press pool up on the stage that he had just occupied, and they've just got their lenses trained on him, that they may see you know, interactions with people that could be taken out of context. One of those interactions, of course, was sometime in 1997 uh, when he's working a rope line and, and has a, a hug with Monica Lewinsky. And you know, that's a picture that happened because uh, it happened out in public. But you know, that helped inform a lot of stories that came after that. Yeah. But, but mostly traveling with, with Bill Clinton, you just knew to allow him to do what comes most naturally to him, which is to shake as many hands as possible, have as many quick conversations as he can. And this was covered from curtain to curtain by the press pool that shadowed him all the time. 
Yeah, and you left, I think it said, just uh, around the time or before the time of the Lewinsky scandal. When that broke and you watched his uh, televised deposition or his televised address that he gave in the wake of that scandal, were there any things that you would have told him to do or not to do had you been there? Well, I wasn't there and they didn't ask me and that got into some um, tricky situations president is going to be deposed. How is the president going to be deposed? Yeah. What's he going to say? What will happen to that video? You know, will it stay as part of just the grand jury evidence or will it be made public? So, you know, that is really out of the realm of what an advanced person can try and do. We, we can, we craft these moments out in public, but there are a lot of things that happen uh, in legal proceedings that are, you know, right. above our pay grade. Well, and also the, I believe, as I recall, the tie he was wearing, it later came out was given to him by Monica Lewinsky. And I think that speaks to something that I, I want to ask you about, because particularly in the age of the Internet and citizen journalism, the backstory of an image can be every bit as damaging. It can ruin a perfectly good uh, photo op. Well, I mean, think of a couple things, Ben. Uh, think of, obviously of Gary Hart and Donna Rice and Bimini. Uh, right. The picture that eventually came out of them with Ms. Rice on Senator Hart's lap was bad enough. The fact that Hart was wearing a shirt that said Monkey Business Crew uh, <laughs> made it all the more memorable. Had he just been wearing a golf shirt, it might not have had as much, well, of course it would have had staying power, but we remember it because it, it identifies the boat, and the, the boat could have been named like North Star, and it would have right. not made as much sense. Right. When President George W. Bush goes off to the USS Abraham Lincoln at the end of the cessation of combat operations in Iraq, and he speaks in front of a banner that says, Mission Accomplished. That banner was placed there for the Abraham Lincoln because it, the Lincoln had completed its deployment, the longest deployment of a carrier since Vietnam. But it was no accident that the White House placed the news cameras in exactly the right uh, angle and line to pick up Mission Accomplished to imply photographically and visually that the U.S. mission in Iraq was accomplished. And there were very few people by the end of President Bush's time in the White House that ever thought that was a good idea. Right. Um, or I think and, of uh, and, the plastic and, turkey, too. And even to this very day, Ben, you know, you think last week of Donald Trump's uh, uh, tweet about Cinco de Mayo and the, oh, uh, the yeah. taco bowl and the I love Hispanics. Yeah. There was a lot to think and say about that picture, that tweet, those very words that he chose. I mean, interestingly, you look under the under the taco bowl, there's a pile of newspapers, and under the pile of newspapers, there's just right. a tiny little bit of a magazine. You can see a picture in that magazine, and it's a picture of a woman in a bikini. That woman happens to be Marla Maples, who's that wife. So what was that doing there? I mean, who, decide, who thought that that was a good idea that, to even allow that to be seen? Because, of course, that's going to be picked apart by the Internet. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Does that tell us that he still uh, has a thing for her, or he's secretly pining for his second wife? I mean, <laughs> but it, the it shouldn't. It shouldn't tell us anything except that it's weird. Yeah, and that. Uh, well, everything is with him. <laughs> I mean, we, the rules you know, don't we, seem to apply. Does that frustrate you? All the stuff, all the rules that you have, <laughs> you know, built your career on over the past twenty, thirty years, suddenly overnight, no longer seem to apply to this one candidate. Ben, it is what it is. The rules that, that have been built up over time for advanced people helping career candidates are because career candidates are not natural celebrities. 
Donald Trump in the 40 years that he's been a public figure, you know, has figured out how to act and comport himself in public in a way that builds and enhances his brand. And so far be it for me to question the success that has brought him from nothing to the point that he is at now. You never see him outside of his blue suit, except where he wears khakis and a, and a golf shirt to go to places like the border. You never right. see him chowing down on a, on a slice of pizza in public. He's very careful about what he does, what he says, uh, in general, appealing to the people that he's trying to talk to. And, um, and he's certainly figured out over 15 years of being the star of a highly rated reality show what works and what doesn't optically to appeal to the people of the Republican primaries who had to give him wins in these primaries and caucuses. Will that work in the general election? Probably not. He may have to conform more to the rules. So I think in, he's done what works for him. Uh, certainly when his 757 with the Trump livery touches down in small cities and towns around the country, they come out partly because they're interested in who the next president might be, but they also want to see a bona fide celebrity who's built his brand over this long period of time. Yeah. We'll have to wait until November to see whether what was successful in a closed primary and caucus process will, in fact, re result in more than 270 electoral votes that would win him the presidency. Well, yeah, and you end the book with uh, a rethinking of the traditional hat rule. You say Trump, who wears his Make America Great hat, probably at least half of his campaign events, led you to something of a revelation about the old hat rule. Yeah, the old hat rule, Ben, that started off the book that preoccupies the thinking uh, of whether Mike Dukakis should get into a tank and wear a helmet seemed to be that can presidential candidates and politicians should never wear hats. And as I reflected on this last year since last June when Donald Trump announced candidacy and wore basically his campaign bumper sticker on his head at all these <laughs> events of which you speak. And the hat is not the most attractive hat in the world, not the most attractive head of hair in the world. It's not the most attractive person in the world. But you know what? People can question his politics. People can question uh, the things he's said. People can not like him at all. But what you can't say is that he's not very much himself in all of his appearances. And he's a guy who's frankly comfortable in his own skin and whether he wears a hat or not i think i realized as i wrote the last few pages of the book that it was never about the hat if you're going to be a successful politician in this day and age i think the most successful recipe is that you be yourself that you don't try and be someone you're not mike dukakis wanted us to believe back on september 13 1988 that he might be a credible tank commander in the main of george s pat that wasn't him, and he paid the price for it. Donald Trump is a bona fide celebrity uh, who has achieved a lot to build his brand. How could you and I question a guy with 9 million Twitter followers? He's had great success up to this moment. Will this carry him past a person who is genuinely perfectly prepared to be president based on her resume and her experience? This will be the ultimate test. I think between someone yeah. who is very comfortable with who he is versus a person who would rather be, you know, in the in the trenches of policy making and, and administrating government rather than going out and selling yourself to the people.
And I have to think, you know, in this age of reality television and social media, certainly there must be a lot of pressure on people in your job to make these traditionally staged campaign events at least appear very organic. It's very tough. Um, there are just a couple of different tools in the toolbox about how to present a candidate on any particular campaign day. I always tried to be as creative as possible. I always tried to match what the candidate was doing with the area and place in which he or she is. Uh, I tried to make sure that there were independent photographers who could capture as many moments as possible to, because uh, the more opportunities they had, likely the better pictures there would be. Uh, but I, and I think this is the testament to Bill Clinton's success over so many years, that it was not so much about the stagecraft and the production and someone like me building his platforms or setting up his lighting trusses. It was that he had lived an amazing life uh, as a boy growing up in Arkansas. He had a uh, profoundly rich experience in college and law school. He had learned how to uh, administer a state and build and develop policies and work through crises. Uh, and yet at his heart, he was still a kid from Arkansas who could weave amazing stories and keep an audience captivated without a script, without a teleprompter uh, for long periods of time. And certainly Barack Obama has used a different approach. Donald Trump <laughs> has used a different approach. Uh, going back to what you just said, you know, the hat has to fit the particular person. Before we wrap up here, I'd be curious, in the age of social media, uh, where memes are so big, I imagine candidates almost have to strive for a bland, uninteresting image nowadays. Do you have any rules on how not to create a memeable photo? Again, you run a very fine line, Ben, uh, between if you, if you create, if you spend your days in a straitjacket, Strictly talking into a teleprompter against a blue drape, there's not a lot of memes that can be created by that. Right. But you, if you're Hillary Clinton, you're running against a very asymmetrical opponent who will take you to task for doing that very thing and not <laughs> being authentic and genuine on the stump. People had a little fun at Secretary Clinton's expense a few weeks ago in New York when she had to swipe her subway card a couple times to get the right. turn style. <laughs> and people called me and said, is this her Dukakis in the tank moment? And I said, no, absolutely not, uh, because these memeable moments, Ben, now come and go uh, as quickly as your Twitter feed refreshes. And so right. as, as dumb things as uh, Donald Trump, Trump might say in the stump, uh, when Secretary Clinton does, does some things that are photographed oddly, uh, it gives us a chuckle for a moment, but nothing has as much staying power anymore is Dukakis in the tank, Bush in the supermarket scanner, doles fall off the stage, because there's so much more content out there that uh, we're overwhelmed by it. We have a momentary chuckle at it, but it's replaced by something new. It's replaced by Ted Cruz calling a basketball hoop, a basketball ring, and then that's the <laughs> yeah. thing for that time. So, yeah. you know, come back. Let's, let's talk again in the fall and see if anything that has happened up to this point, gets reused and repurposed the way John Kerry's windsurfer was, Mitt right. Romney's singing was, or Dukakis's tank was, into a blistering and effective and humorous and cutting campaign ad by the other side. 
and then we'll say which optics matter and which don't. Yeah, it's definitely an, an interesting time because an image or a story can travel much wider and much faster than it ever used to, but the candidate can recover much, much more quickly, I suppose. What we've seen, Ben, is that it flames out. Now, what we haven't seen yet and what the book points out is that hard at work, and certainly Secretary Clinton's campaign, you would hope for Trump's case in his campaign that they're making a careful log of all these things. And if they can bring it back to life in a humorous and effective way, harnessing the free media that comes with some with very funny and good stuff being played over and over by the cable networks, uh, then what has happened to this point may matter. But Hillary and the uh, and the subway card, Trump and the hat, Ted Cruz and the basketball ring, it'll be forgotten unless it's creatively brought back to life. Well, the book is called Off Script, An Advanced Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide. Josh King, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ben. It was a pleasure. Kick ass. Thanks again to Josh King for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to read his new book, Off Script, An Advanced Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, campaign spectacle, and political suicide. I'll include an Amazon link where you can order it in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Or if you prefer to listen to the audio version, you can download that for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. You can keep up with Josh King on his website at polyoptics.com that's spelled P-O-L-I-O-P-T-I-C-S. Or on Twitter at at Polyoptics. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash Politics, Or click on the donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kickass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.